attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. There'll be so many people, oh, I really want to do this, but I can't because of X, right? You're coming from a place of privilege. I don't have the freedom to do this. And my response is, you're choosing to value something more than that. You always have a choice. I say, no, 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 I don't. I have my kid's private school to pay for. I have my mortgage to pay for. I have my car. Like, Again, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. You could not make that mortgage payment. There are consequences to that choice. Your home will get foreclosed on, but you're saying, I value this more than that. Like stop taking the agency away from yourself and realizing where you have that agency and that you're proactively making a choice. Welcome back to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. It's been a fun fall season so far. And if you've enjoyed our conversations with Carl Sergio, Amanda Dunfield, Mark Stanky, and Hibabetta, you're going to love this one with Andrew McConnell. Andrew is an author and a startup founder. We talk about his book, Get Out of My Head, Creating Modern Clarity with Stoic Wisdom. And we talk about how our mindsets affect our business and our life. Get ready for a perspective shift. Enjoy this conversation with Andrew McConnell, author, startup founder, and former CEO of Rented, Inc. Welcome back to Context and Clarity Live. This is where we talk about the things that matter the most to you, the architect. 
doesn't matter what your context is. We dig into things that matter to you in terms of your business, in terms of your life, in terms of your relationships. And I think today, probably our, our topic, our conversation might touch on all of those things. So I'm excited to get started here with our special guest who's back in the green room right now. As always, I am joined by Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie. It's great to be here. Excellent. Let's just go ahead and introduce our guest because I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This guest was introduced to me a while back by our CEO, a company that I work for, Shadow Partners, KP Ready, and enjoyed reading his book or listening to his book and getting to know what he's all about. So our guest today is an author, a mentor, and a startup founder. He recognizes the mind as our most precious and finite resource. In fact, it's the only thing of value anyone can truly possess. Think about that for a few minutes. He's the founder and former CEO of Rented Inc. and the author of Get Out of My Head, Creating Modern Clarity with Stoic Wisdom. Andrew McConnell, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. We were talking before we got started. I've listened to your book. Katie's been binging your book. And one of the questions that came to my mind, and there's probably a question I should ask before this, but one question, because there's a story that you tell early on about going to your friend's house and your dad picking you up. I think you were in fourth grade, maybe. The one question that came to my mind was, were you born a Stoic? No, no, absolutely not. I think biologically, no one's born a Stoic. Okay. The brain is not structured to be a Stoic, but I do think there's certain people that find their path to Stoicism more quickly because the number of people, whether they read the book or in discussion or they come to a talk, they say, oh, wow, this really aligns with a lot of my thinking. I, I never knew there was this label Stoicism yeah. that you would add to Because I, I think most people... When they think stoic, they think the lowercase pejorative, oh, stony face, unemotional, right? There are those people, but stoicism with the capital S, the, the philosophy and the practice of it is a very different thing. And I think the whole point of why it's a practice and an ongoing practice, something you have to keep investing in, is because our default state is the opposite in so many ways to let our mind run rampant, right? We pave the way for other people to take that precious resource away from us. That's the default state. And so you need tools, practices, whether it's Stoicism or whether it's Taoism or Buddhism or prayer, you know, these other things that come in to help reclaim that precious real estate that lies between your ears. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for the sake of conversation, anybody that may be jumping into this, that one hasn't read your book or hasn't participated, developed any of these practices, you know, some of the, the things that you just listed off there. What's a useful definition or framing of what you're talking about here? I mean, we could say stoicism and someone could certainly Google it, but for the sake of our conversation here, how do we need to frame what we're talking about here and then start applying this to the things that we'll talk about? Yeah, I mean, the biggest distinction is the separation of what are the things within our control and those that are not. And then there's this middle gray area of things within our influence that we can influence. We don't control them. They're not completely out of our control. We can influence them. And that's where you know it could be the serenity prayer, right? There's so many different ways that people have phrased this to get there. And the 
book and how I come at it coming from real estate, coming from rented.com was this idea of, well, let's think about how we treat possessions or home, right? We would never let someone just walk through our front door, sit on our couch, start eating all our snacks that we didn't invite in. But with our mind, we constantly do it, right? The person who cuts us off in traffic does not know we exist, but we're sitting there in a bad mood and angry and tense for hours afterwards because they come in. And so when you think about what are those things that we possess, that we truly own, right? We come into this world naked and screaming. We might leave the same way. The physical possessions that we can buy can break down. They can degrade. We could be a Russian billionaire and they could be confiscated from us, right? Like there's no security in anything you acquire physically. Our body, you say, well, I own my body. Well, do you, right? Little virus, little bacteria can get in and kind of <laughs> wreak havoc and take that away from you. But while you're here, no one yet, and who knows where technology will get, no one yet can truly take over your mind. You have to give them the permission to do it. But our default is we just constantly are giving permission. And then everybody feels so stretched thin saying, well, I just don't have enough time for myself. I just, I can't stop thinking about these other things, these other people. And so we live like we're trying to rent pieces back of the one thing that we owned in the first place. We just gave the rest of it away. And so that's really the lens that I put on it is that whole mental real estate side and moving from our default of tenancy to a position of agency and ownership. And I love how you list that in the book that you say what's in your control is opinion, pursuit, desire, and aversion. Just to give some people some context about what sort of things describe your mind and what you control. Yeah, I mean, it's the story we tell, right? The event happened. And then this label, Hamlet headline, there's neither good nor bad. It's our thinking makes it so. It's we go put the tone or the label on, was this a good event? Was it a bad event? Was it an indifferent event? That's the story we create. But X happened. That's just a factual statement. And then we tell the story around it. I think one of the fascinating things about your book, and Kitty, I'm glad you brought that up. Most people, and algorithms are an interesting thing, right? And when I scroll through Instagram, I see a lot of posts about stoicism. I see a lot of posts about mindfulness. That's the bubble that I have walked into and Instagram is perpetuating for me, right? But most people are probably familiar with at least this idea or these types of practices around their lives, maybe their relationships, et cetera. But I think that's one of the things that really, I mean, that's why your book was originally suggested to me, recommended to me, was because you focus on business, right? And so taking these practices and then bringing them into the realm of, I guess I'll say most recent culture, because you've had a journey of a career, but you know, you've most recently been involved in startup world which has changed a little bit recently because of acquisition, et cetera. But that's the people in this audience, in this community, right? They're small firm architects. They're starting their thing. They're running their thing. They're, you know, whatever it is. And I think this is a really useful conversation for the personal aspects of it, certainly, but also framed in that business context. So why did you decide to frame it that way for business? Yeah, it actually comes down to... People have different moments that click for them. Maybe a lot of people are familiar with Tim Ferriss, the 4-Hour Workweek guy, 4-Hour Body, the podcast, very, very popular. But in the 4-Hour Body, he has this how to lose 30 pounds in 30 days without exercising or dieting. 
right? And it's a slow carb diet, six days a week, you eat these things, and then seventh day, eat whatever you want. My parents are both physicians, right? Went to med school, practice decades. And I shared this book with my dad. In the first year, he lost 65 pounds and started running half marathons. He said, what they taught me about nutrition in med school is wrong. And so he put thousands of patients. My mom put thousands of patients on. My brother-in-law completely changed as soon as he read the book. My father-in-law took a different point. And so I had three people in my life that reading the book had entirely different aha moments. So mm. there was an aha moment for my dad. This one person that Tim Ferriss illustrates it with is this NASA scientist who's grossly overweight and he goes clothes shopping. And he says, why does it matter? I'm not going to look good in anything I put on. I'm just, I'm gross. And then he thinks to himself, wait a minute. I'm a NASA scientist. I'm good at anything I choose to be good at. I could be good at this. Why don't I just get good at this? And my dad, having an ego, is like, wait, I'm good at everything I do. I can do this too, right? And that was his aha moment. And the next day it changed and you know, having grandkids and his whole framework. My brother-in-law, there's a whole separate part of the chapter about you could look thin, but you have a lot of visceral fat around your organs and the dangers of that and what it could do to your life. And you know, he was starting to have kids and this risk of, wait, there may be something I don't see that is a danger to me. So it was a wake-up call for him. My father-in-law, who knows if he read it or not? He did not have the aha moment. His aha moment came when we were hiking and he couldn't keep up with everybody. And he's wheezing and he's, oh, you know, and then got home, 23 pounds in the next six months. And what that taught me was the facts are their own thing. Tim Ferriss also has this line, if, if all it took was knowledge, everybody would have a six pack. So we all know, right, eat right, exercise, like it's clear path. But what gets you to change has to be intrinsically motivated. Somebody asked me on a podcast or somebody recently, how do you motivate people? When you go to these talks, how do you motivate people? I don't motivate it. As soon as I get off stage, I'm out of their life. As soon as they put down the book, I'm out of their life. What I try to do is the blog posts could only reach so many people. A book, hey, I can illustrate each point from my career from this social activist or this entrepreneur, this other person, and create more of these potentials for aha moments for people, which is then you do the TED Talk and then you do more podcasts to try to just increase the surface area for these things that are objectively going to help people, right? So many people, they reach out and they say, oh my God, your book came at the exact right time in my life. And some say, look, if this came three years ago, I wouldn't have been in the right headspace for it. It wouldn't have clicked with me. It was right now is when it came and it was exactly why I needed. Let me tell you the story of why it's so perfect for what happened today, what happened this week, what's going on this year. And I think that's why I put it in that context. Like there are musicians in it, there are athletes in it, there are business people in it. It's just trying to create more opportunities for people to see something that resonates with them that will help them live a better life. That hit a little bit hard. First of all, you sold the book already. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I said, he's got for Saipan. That's cool. But as you said that, you know, in the book coming at the right time, I actually have a tattoo because of a book that came in at the right time. It's a, it's a tribute to that. It's in a way it is about mindfulness. In a big way, it's about mindfulness, but I like that. And I like, you know, the idea that it's everybody has their own aha moment. I think it's exactly right. I've mentioned before the story about your dad picking you up from your friend's house. That one, that's early in the book. I forget exactly where, but it's early in the book. But I think it really resonates with a lot of people because it's, well, today's Tuesday, but maybe Monday morning, you're thinking, oh, I should have 
work this weekend and, you know, should have gotten this done. And now I'm worried about how the, the week is going to shape up and things like that. But I probably won't be able to get it right. But your dad said, do it or don't do it. But if you don't do it, don't spend your time worrying about it. I butchered that. But I think that's a really good lesson. Yeah. I mean, because the example you give, it's the danger and the risk is less the Monday morning, right? That that could get into the pre-suffering, post-suffering. But it's as you're not doing the work, like you're at your kid's soccer game on Saturday yeah. or you're out with friends watching an NFL game on Sunday, you're not really watching because you're worried about, oh man, there's so much I should be doing to get ready for tomorrow. And so you're completely wasting the time because your mind's not there on the thing you've chosen to do. And so it's either choose to go do the work or don't do the work, but don't spend the time not doing the work, worrying about the work because yeah. then you just got the worst of all worlds. You're not getting the work done and you're not enjoying the time that you took away from it. And there is something magical about writing it down. Mm. And there's more and more research that's coming out on this on literally physically writing something versus typing, how it works with our brain and how it can help transfer that cognitive load. If you think about our short-term memory, very similar to RAM in a computer, and we only have so much. And while that's sitting there, it doesn't create space for other things to come in. But when we write it down, our brain says, okay, I believe that this is captured somewhere. I don't need to keep reminding you because of the risk of forgetting it. You've written it somewhere. I feel more comfortable with it. And so just physically writing it down and then ideally calendaring a time of this is when I'm going to go deal with this. I write it down and I know when I'm going to go do it and let me just be fully present now. So I don't have to have that carrying over me the whole time. What do you think is holding most business people back? Is it something like that? And this is a huge, broad question, I I understand. But is there some sort of commonality that holds people back and keeps them from achieving what they're capable of? I don't think there's a single thing. I mean, I think there are numerous things, as many as there are founders and there are people. One big thing I see over and over on mentoring and investing and advising and, you know, for myself, quite honestly, my wife said, you're not great at this. Why, why are you talking about it? Is being clear on prioritization. There's no shortage of things that can be done, but there are only a very small few that are the most important thing. And so with my business is really trying to be clear, not just with myself, but with the team at any given moment, what is the one metric that matters most right now? The one metric that matters. If we moved this, it helps all other things. So in a marketplace and kind of funnel business, it could be, hey, it's this one step in the funnel. We need a 2x the conversion. Mm. And everybody from product design to sales to customer support, everybody figure out how you're playing a role in improving this. And once that's settled, then figuring out what is that next one metric that is the most important. Is it our CSAT score? Is it our cost of acquisition? But being very, very clear and Part of it in being very clear on it is for the whole team to know and be able to see, okay, here's the role I'm playing in it and doing. But also for me, it's a little bit like tying Odysseus to the mast and having everybody else with the beeswax around them is because I'm very easy to go on a shiny object. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Remember, we could do that. But does that move this thing that you said is the most important thing? And the number of times my team's done this, you are absolutely right. (laughs) Ignore what I just said. and Let's stick to the game plan that we talked about. And so I think that is a very big one because people will feel stretched then and very, very busy 
And then when you go look at where they're spending their time and what they say matters, they don't align very well. And almost every single time I've had an executive that starts getting that, I say, okay, what I'm going to do, I create a spreadsheet for them, Google Sheet. I say every single day, you're going to think this is obnoxious, but every single day, I want you every 15 minutes to show me what you're doing. Every single 15 minutes, we're going to do this for two weeks. Then we're going to come back and see what of this just we erase. What of it we kick to someone else? And what really needs to be with you? And most of the time people say, oh, I'm stretched too thin. We go out and 40 plus percent just throws off. No one needs to pick it up. Say, this isn't moving the needle for anything that matters. Just stop doing these things. And then other things can go to other people, lower cost resources. Or we say, hey, if this is repetitive, let's work with the dev team. Can we create a product around it? Can we at least automate some of this? Yeah. yeah so that's a great question, Mark, because that is yet another one that I know I've run into holding people back. This fear of if we give it our all and we fall short, what does that say about us? And this whole existential identity crisis of as long as I'm hedging, then I don't have to confront this very, very difficult question. I had a friend in college, we were swimmers, and he would have this line after meet sometimes when you just do, not do what I say, oh, well, I wasn't trying, right? It's a coping mechanism of, hey, as long as I'm not trying, it's okay that I'm not. I could, if I tried, maybe, I have a friend locally, right? We do these swim races. And if he doesn't feel 100% confident he's going to win, he just doesn't do the race because he's so wow. afraid of failing. And I think we do that a lot in business, whether it's people have this startup idea but they kind of stay at their corporate job or they'll keep doing the consulting thing and not fully going in on the thing that they're really passionate and excited about. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that fear side is a huge barrier for a lot of people. You touched on something that I think entrepreneurs and architects have in common, that identity aspect of the work we do that we start to define. And with physicians as parents, there's sometimes like when you're called a doctor, you're a doctor your whole life whether you're traveling on a plane with your family or anything else. And so I believe you touched on this in the book with talking about your time and your five top values. Can you speak to a little bit of that, about how you're defining where you put your time holistically, thinking about you as a whole person, yeah. instead of just putting it all into one bucket? I mean, there's so much there. <laughs> so, I mean, that whole identity crisis that you run into, if it is all in, on one thing, right? So there's a part of my career I was all in as a swimmer. That's what I want. National team, this is my route, right? And got injured and I wasn't competing at the same level. Right? Huge identity crisis as an 18, 19 year old saying, wait a minute, <laughs> this is who I am, but I'm not good at it. So what does that say about me as a person? Fortunately, I was still in school so I could just create a new identity. I'm a student. And so as a result, I just stayed in school for a long time, right? Did undergrad, did law school, did a law school in the UK, right? Just, okay, this is my identity. This is great. Then going to consulting. I'm a consultant. I wear the blue shirt. I wear the dark slacks. I fly out on Monday. I fly back on Thursday. I have my Tumi bag, like everything. I got the uniform. This is who I am. Never mind that I'm miserable, right? Like I actually hate this and I'm really not enjoying it, but it's who I am. Like if I'm not this, I couldn't be anything else. There's no other world out there other than this one thing, which is insane when you get distant from it's like, well, there was actually an entire world that entire time. And so it took me a long time to kind of get away from this label of I am a thing to I am a person that can grow and change and learn and do multiple things and have multiple, right? Like, yes, I was a founder and 
started a few companies, but I also wrote a book and I also do speaking. And so when people say, what do you do? I say, well, I don't know. I do a lot of things and I'm going to do different things tomorrow than I did today. So that's one. The other side, I think what you're talking about, Katie, is creating and crafting the life that we want to live that aligns with who we want to be or who we see ourselves to be. And very few people know what their core values are. And there's certain things that everybody says, well, I value all these things. Like, yeah, but what are your personal core values? Because once you go through it and then you start tracking how you're living your life, you can see, am I actually valuing that or not? Is that something that my parents told me I should value, but I don't actually value or society is telling me I should value, but I don't, or I do value, but I haven't prioritized it. I think Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix, talked about that. He always thought, oh, my number one thing is family, family, family. And then they went to therapy with him and his wife. And it was very clear that none of his time was going to this thing that he said mattered. And so he had to completely change how he lived his life. He's like, no, no, this is actually more important. I need to reallocate because I'm doing this wrong. And so when I went through that exercise, I came up with 10, right? Because they all sound great. You want all these really noble values that you value. And then I tracked, right? Just like I would do with my executives each 15 minutes, like, where's my time going? And there were really only five. The other five sounded good, but if ever the opportunity, they would get pushed to the side for these other five. These five were truly core. And my ranking of those five were not what I thought they were. Like it was the ones that I thought it would were the right things to say. But where I chose to spend my time and where I the next day wanted to continue to choose to spend my time, it was a different order. So I had to go read through, okay, here's the order. And I, I did the exercise actually again last year. You know, I did it probably each year do it. And they're still the same, right? So that value part has been consistent and the rank ordering has been consistent for me. But then taking that and looking at the time and then mapping out, okay, where should my time go as a result? And so instead of trying to fit in the things that I value after the fact, those are the things that my calendar has to get built around. Right? Those are the building blocks that are the baseline and everything else has to fit around to make sure that other people are building around my life when it comes to my life, not me building my life around some design they didn't think about me at all. Yeah. You're talking about some pretty hard work there. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. 
It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I agree. I think there are a lot of people that don't know what their core values are. What I'm learning is it takes some incredible introspection to go through that and do what you're talking about. As you start doing that every year, you said you can revisit this every year. What's your process? What's your personal process to do that, to go through that? Yeah, there are actually some good frameworks. So where I initially came to it was a Tony Robbins book that had it as an exercise, I think, Awakening the Giant Within, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's another book from a guy actually based out in Colorado, used to be in Atlanta. I forget his name off the top of my head, but it, the book is called Business Outside. And he has it as an exercise with the PDFs as well. So you have this starter list of here are the kinds of things you go and then just start going through and ranking them and ranking them and keep filtering down and then tracking your time. Okay, let's go audit how you spent your time last week or the week before. Or if you're not great at remembering, let's just start from today and let's start tracking where your time's actually going, how you're actually living your life. And then Tony Robbins is, is much more proactive of saying he believes you can change your values. Right. That if you want to be this person, say, hey, yeah, here's how I'm living today, but I want to be this other person. I want that to be my number one value. Yeah. He takes a much more proactive route. I think that's probably true. I just, I have been fine. I maybe it's ex post rationalization, but I'm good with my values and their ranking. I think they're the right ones for me. Maybe they will change. And that's why I go through the exercise, but I haven't thought through a, I want to move number three to number one because my number three was my number one when I initially did it. And then I lived, I was like, eh, it's really not. It's number three. Yeah. Bart Foster is the author yes. of Business Outside, just for context. And he's yeah. based, I want to say, in Boulder and does these kind of workshops and everything around it. But his book has this exercise. With it. Yeah, that's good. You also said something there about basically having, I don't remember if it was everybody, but everything working around your time. You know, so it's prioritization, right? Putting yourself first. And we talk about this in the, talk that I host in the mornings. It's called Jabba with Jeff. That's our 30 minutes thinking about mindset. But, you know, the idea that putting yourself first is not selfish, right? Those are two different things. And one of the things I've been reading lately is The Artist's Way. And very early in The Artist's Way, the author whose name escapes me at the moment. Julia Cameron. There you go. Thank you. I've got all the answers. I've got Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Magic Google box knows all. She says, you know, what's the difference between artists that make it and artists that don't make it? You know, that kind of thing. And it comes down to audacity and not necessarily in the way that we typically, or I would have typically, oh, that person's got a lot of audacity to do that. But we have to have the audacity to schedule around these priorities. We have to have the audacity to say, hey, if these are my core values, then I need to be spending time on these things that reflect these core values or however we approach it. So how do you find the audacity? How do you find the confidence? I don't know what the right word is, but how do you find it to to say, hey, this is the way I'm going to operate? I think it's only social conditioning that makes it think that that's audacious. Yeah, I agree. It's 
But I think we struggle with it. I think a lot of people struggle with it. Oh, 100%. I'm not saying it's not a struggle, but I don't think that's a natural thing. I think that's social conditioning. Yeah. It makes us feel that way about it. And it's, there'll be so many people, oh, I really want to do this, but I can't because of X, right? You're coming from a place of privilege. I don't have the freedom to do this. And my response is, you're choosing to value something more than that. You always have a choice. I say, no, 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 I don't. I have my kid's private school to pay for. I have my mortgage to pay for. I have my car. I like, Again, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. You could not make that mortgage payment. There are consequences to that choice. Your home will get foreclosed on, but you're saying, I value this more than that. Like, Stop taking the agency away from yourself and realizing where you have that agency and that you're proactively making a choice. It's not that that's worse or better. It's just the story. Back, If we go back to the opinions and the stories we tell, the story of, oh, wait, no, I am making this decision that I am valuing this thing. And that thing could be your children or your wife. That is a totally fine answer. But be clear that you did have a choice and you are each day choosing them versus this. That is a choice you're making. You're not a victim. The shackles are entirely within your head there. You every day are making that choice. I also think people can set that bar too high on what it is they need to do to make it seem unattainable, right? Oh, I mean, I did this forever with writing. It's like, oh, I'd really love to write, but I need to go sell a company and do this and this, that, and the other. And I went to a writer's workshop and there were people published eight, 10 more books, all these books. And they did it. Well, the guy was an attorney in San Francisco. He's like, oh yeah, my writing time was when I would take, I lived in Sausalito and I would take the ferry over and I would write each morning. Or the guy who was a financial advisor. And he's like, yeah, I sold my first book and I quit at Merrill and I was going to do this. And then I got my first royalty check and I went back to Merrill and said, can I please keep working here? And you realize, wait, if I care about writing, I don't need all these other pieces. I can choose to put that as time in my life today if it's something that I care enough about to do. And we have so much more freedom than we give ourselves because the picture we paint of, I can't be a writer unless I'm like Hemingway living in Paris, hanging out with Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein, right? Like, no, there are lots of other ways that you could <laughs> just write. So that's all you need to do to be a writer or a painter, like spend some time painting or to start a company. Everybody has an idea for a book, for a company. Very few people just actually go do it. And that's a choice. And you're choosing... I, I choose security versus this uncertainty. These are choices that we have and recognizing our role in making that choice with each action, each day we wake up, take that agency back. Don't give that away to anybody else. It seems like we, some of us need to give ourselves permission to do that with the social construct and the things that we build up in our heads. The mortgage payment or whichever example, can you give yourself permission to let go of that or to make a different choice? Or not make it. That's the thing is you don't have to make a different choice to still have the choice. You just consciously go in and say, no, I value what other people think about me more than I value my own happiness. Okay, great. There you go. And then you might want to struggle with that one for a while. if, If that's true, like, Do you? like Who are these people? And why do you care more about them than how you value yourself? But these are all choices and understanding. This is where understanding your values, understanding the choices you're making. Are they matching? If not, why? And how can you make them match better? 
that's all part of building and living a fulfilling life. So I'm imagining there's still things that happen in life that might cause fear for you. I mean, being a parent, there's just a whole new gamut of things than just starting a business. So what's a mindful way that when you start to feel fear or think about fearful thoughts that could start to dwell, getting free rent in your brain, how do you start to switch your mindset for that? I mean, it depends on the context. So one on like a security side of whether it's I'm sitting meditating in the morning or I'm swimming in the ocean or whatever it is, just reminding myself, no matter what else I had or didn't have, this thing that I'm doing right now is where I would choose to be right now. And this costs nothing. I don't need any other resources for this thing. And same, like I'm playing with my daughter. We don't have video games or anything, but like I can just play with her and she makes up the games and we don't need anything to do that. So really being clear on the times that I value and where I find my energy and my joy and how little extra is needed for that takes away some of that security fear. On the fear about her and her life, and this may be I'm going too far off on, but it's her life. I'm much more concerned about conditioning her to try to live my life or things that, I hey, I really wish I had done this better. Let me steer you this way. I mean, there was a reason I went through our storage and threw away all my medals. Every single thing that I've ever won is like, that's gone. I'm not that person anymore. And two, I don't want that hanging over her. Just because I did these things doesn't mean she needs to do it. She gets to craft her own path. And that's more my fear. Like I do remember... Within a week or two when she was born, I texted my wife because it just hit me and I almost started crying. I was at the gym. I said, one day someone's going to be mean to our baby. And it's just like the idea, this innocent child who just goes, like that someday someone was going to be mean. It was like so crushing. But then, I mean, now she's seven and people are. And like, it breaks your heart and it's sad. But also you wouldn't want to shield her from that because like someday I'm not going to be here and that's going to happen. Like she needs to go through life and experience life as a real person with all its facets. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some time that there'll be something super, super scary, but I just try to live where I'm kind of at peace at any given moment. Like, hey, there's a ton more I want to do and raise her at this. But if I got taken out today, I don't have regrets because I went through the priorities of each day. Like this is where I chose to spend today. I, I didn't do all these other things because I chose to prioritize these other things that I wanted to get done first. And these other things may never get done and if they aren't, it's because it was a proactive choice of, I chose to put these other things ahead of these things. And so being comfortable with it on that side, then you can be put in a situation. It was uh, Ram Das, I think, had this line about, I failed the test many times. If you think you're comfortable with all this and then you're put in a situation where it's really tested and you're not comfortable at all. And so that's where I like, I'm not going to pretend I'm Buddha here. I'm sure I could be put in a situation where I'm like, oh my God, I am not ready for this at all. But right now I don't feel that way. Sometimes people mistake contentment with complacency. Mm. And they think if you're content, then you don't have drive to do better or to do anything else in life. And the way you talk about it, it you are driven to so much, but you're not dissatisfied with how far you've gone. And that's an interesting balance to hear about from the way you talk about your philosophy. <laughs> I had a friend 
who sold her company for a whole bunch of money to a big company. And she was like, oh, stoicism. Like, is that just like for people who just don't care about the life? It was like, I can see how this is good for the corporate world where everybody's just like fine being mediocre and they don't care. Like, she was just so good. Cool I was like, just to be clear, you know, that's not what this is about at all, right? The non-attachment is about the result, but you still care about the process. What are the things you can control? I'm going to keep caring about those and keep working on those to find my fulfillment and have the impact that I think I'm capable of. But if it doesn't land, right, then that doesn't mean I'm a failure. It means that that process didn't work this time. I need to try another one. And for me, the past 12 months, I don't think there was a better illustration for me personally than this than Djokovic at Wimbledon. So he goes, he plays, he's heartbroken. He's breaking down into tears. He's looking up at his son. Alcaraz is there. And they ask him about it. And he said, look, there were years that I was here holding that trophy where it could have easily gone to Roger or to Raphael. But those days went my way. Today, that wasn't the case, right? Djokovic didn't take the lesson when I beat them those times. I'm done. I don't need to worry about my fitness and my nutrition and my training and my sleep. He cared about the process. And when the results were great, he focused on the process. When the results weren't what he wanted, he focused on the process. And then he came back and won the US Open, set the record. I mean, but the guys focus on the process because the other guy on the other side of the net is also working on his fitness, nutrition, his sleep, everything to be ready. And they're playing. Both can give it 100%, but it's not fully in your control. You can influence how the match goes. You can't fully control what that person across the net's going to do. And yeah, I just, it was one of the most gracious, I think, best losing speeches I'd ever heard. And just the perfect illustration when he just turned around and came back and won the next major. That's a great example. And, it, you know, I think about our audience, our community here is entrepreneur architects. And most people in the audience have small firms, what we would technically call small businesses. You know, to me, it's always interesting. You know, how did that firm start? What keeps them going? What keeps them from being a mid-sized firm, a large firm? And, you know, there's a million reasons for that. And it's not to say that a small firm needs to grow to be a medium-sized. That's not the metric, right? But I do know, having worked with a lot of people and been part of this community for a long time, that there are people that, well, I guess it's back to the fear, right? I think it's... I talk about this theoretical tattoo on your arm that says, this is my business. Right? This is my business. It's none of your business. Or this is my business. This is my business. And I think that's where this book really, one of the places that this book really resonates a lot, right? I get to make the decisions, but I also know that there are an awful lot of business people that are allowing their customers, their clients, especially in professional services like architects. Letting their clients dictate. And that's why I come back to that tattoo. This is my business. My clients don't get to dictate this. If they do, I'm allowing them to dictate it. Right. It's a choice. I've chosen either by my lack of choosing to let them dictate it or by proactively choosing, but it's back to my choice. Like, yeah, you get to decide are you going to wake up and show up at work? Are you going to reply to that email? Are you going to deliver that project on time? That's still all up to you. Yeah. And also the complaint that we do it this way because this is the way we've always done it. You know, this is the way the profession works. That's never a good reason. I mean, back to the... No, it's not. Because it does come at some level, I think, on even when you go through the values, understanding why you value those things, right? Of 
a little bit on why I threw away all the swimming stuff, everything around that of my daughter could really want to achieve these things, but it's achieving it to match me or do something like, is that a healthy or helpful motivation? And so, so many things saying, hey, I really care about X. Okay, well, why do you care about X? Oh, because I think it'll make my parents proud. Or I think it'll impress the people I went to middle school with that I haven't seen in 20 years, right? Like I, I want to put this photo on Facebook for people to see the X, Y, and Z. Just very, very few people know what they value, but almost no one goes to that next step of, well, why do I value that? In doing that deep work to then get through, is this something I want to continue to value? Right. Does, does that continue to matter to me or not? Yeah. I love that five whys exercise that really makes you get to the core of it. And if you don't land on your values after five whys, then maybe it's not a value, but like thinking about it. Yeah, the five whys is that's a great tool in a lot of different contexts. It's peeling the onion, right? Really. So we can down and it may lead to tears. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Katie. So with a title like Get Out of My Head, what do you choose to put in your head? How do you choose? Like, do you watch the newest Star Wars or <laughs> you watch tennis? Because I think that's what US Open is. Sorry, I don't follow sports. But <laughs> there's obviously some things that you let in. Yeah. So funnily, no, I don't actually watch tennis. It was my wife watched it. She's English. So she got into Wimbledon. So I saw the speech. I don't think I saw any of the match. It was, she had it up and I, I came to like see her and I saw this. I was like, I love this speech. This is so amazing. And then I saw zero of the US Open. I just saw the results after. Maybe she watched some of it. I don't watch much of anything. I don't know the last time I was in a movie theater. The last time I was in a movie theater must have been like eight years ago. My wife was pregnant. We went with friends and we were there for five minutes because she got morning sickness and we left. It was Jurassic Park. It was a long time ago. The only reason I ever watch TV is just to spend time with my wife because she loves TV. So I'll, I'll give her 30 minutes a night. I'm like, here, we'll do this together. But that's not um, my thing. On social media, as I always explain to people, I'm a producer, not a consumer. So like, oh, didn't you see X, Y, Z? Like, no, <laughs> I do not scroll through social media. I'm not going to spend my time giving algorithms time in my mind. Like, that's not how I'm going to choose to live my life. So I proactively, whether it's the podcasts I listen to or the books I read, or in how I calendar my time, right? So going through this zero-based calendar design of, hey, look, we all get the same 24 hours a day. Bezos has the same as me, as this newborn baby. We all get 24 hours. How do I want to live mine? And my personal values on growth, health, family, curiosity, and peace, making sure that I'm getting those pieces each day. So what is the time I'm allocating to learning, reading? What's the time I'm allocating to creating? That could be writing, that could be recording a podcast. What is the time I'm giving to helping? That could be advising a company, could be through a blog post, like creating and helping could be the same kind of thing. And time with the family or time exercising. And so it's just built around what are the things I care most about and then allocating my calendar accordingly. Yeah, I like that. And I know that there are people that will hear that, that will read that and see, well, I can't, right? And you addressed this earlier, right? It's... I can't do that because of this, right? That's a choice. It's a choice. And it's also maybe you don't have, look, I sold my company. So my flexibility on time is not the same as it was when it was my own company. There are certain meetings that I have with the executive team that were like, these are the locked in meetings. But what I do get is like people see my calendar and say, oh my God, this gives me so much anxiety. It's so full. 
say, yeah, but it's it's filled with stuff that I chose to put here, right? So, you know, it's also filled with these 15-minute breaks twice a day for breathing exercises, to recenter myself, to clear my head between things. These breaks, like, it's full because I want to be purposeful on where this finite amount of time and energy that I have is going to go. I'm not going to just default of, oh, my calendar is wide open and anybody can book it. And I show up in the day and say, okay, who owns me today? Well, I'm not going to do that. That's just how I'm going to live my life. I create a calendar and say, okay, here are the three hours a week you can book. And people say, man, you're so busy. I can't get time with you till December. Okay, that's fine. Like you ask for time with me if you want it. Like that's when you can get it. Yeah, that's a good lesson. That's a very good lesson. I think many of us are choosing a different path. But that is a good point. We have seasons of life. We have seasons of career. We have, you know, all of those things. Yeah, it's a personal thing. I'm not saying my way of doing it would make some people absolutely miserable. I did a talk for a company and one of the salespeople said, well, this is all well and good for you, but I'm a salesperson. My dad said he was so successful in sales because he was immediately responsive to every single email call that came through. I said, That's totally fine. You're choosing to prioritize that over this. It's still your choice. You choose to do that. I'm just saying, I don't prioritize that. I'm not saying you need to choose it. I'm just giving you an example. Here's how I do it. But you get to decide what your priorities are. I'm not going to set up for you. That is just as unproductive as a stranger setting up for you. That's not helpful. Yeah, I think as a reminder, we need to bring that back around, right, to your core values, right? If you are really in tune with that and you do the work, because, yeah, I'm going to tell everybody, that's not easy work necessarily to get to really get there. Like you said, you had 10, right? And then willed it to five, et cetera. If we're not doing that work, I think that's where the disconnect, and obviously you know this much better than I do, but I think that's where the disconnect is for a lot of us is, okay, you know, I've decided this, that, or the other, but at some point we realize that that's not really my core value or we wonder why that's making us miserable when we're able to admit it. I mean, one of the saddest things that can happen is you get everything you want only to find out it's not what you wanted in the first place. Right. And, and I had this in my career early on, was super, super lucky. I went to law school for a very specific reason. I got exactly that on steroids. I got everything, I mean, everything possible aligned to give me the perfect everything. And I hated it. And I was just super, super lucky to learn that at 23 as opposed to 53. I mean, like, oh my God, where did the last 30 years go? I need to go figure this all out. I got hit. And a lot of people that dream is retirement, right? And it's like, oh, when I retire, it's all going to be better. I just have to get through the next 40 years or whatever it is till I get to that. Okay, well, let's just start mapping out what is it about retirement? Well, I don't want to be beholden to someone else's schedule or I want to sleep in or I want... Okay, well, let's just tactically, what are the specific things? Not retirement is this vague category, but specifically, what is it that you value that you want so badly? And start trying to get more of that today to see, do you actually value that? And if you do, just like with the writing, you don't need to wait years and years to write. You could just create the time now to start writing, right? Like just track something else. There's a reason I don't watch TV. I'd rather go write screenplays than watch someone else's. You can do these things if you know what it is you really want. And the sooner that you can test that you really want it, the sooner you can find out if it's real or not. I know we've only got another minute or two left, but is that the biggest takeaway that you hope for the book 
or do you have something that you hope is the biggest takeaway? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the biggest takeaway kind of changes with seasons of initially it was the thing that resonated most was the zero-based calendaring and like how to craft life. And then it was, what are you running from? What are you running to? And how do we craft that life today? And those exercises. And this is where the website has this free downloadable workbook and all the exercises in it. So perhaps if there were two big takeaways, one is you can and should own your mind. And if you're not, that is a choice that you're making maybe by lack of choosing, but you can go fix this. People have for thousands of years all over the world found ways to address this. I would highly suggest working on it. The other big takeaway I would say is on the agency factor that you are making a choice by not making a choice. So you might as well proactively make that choice. Make choice, yeah. Be deliberate, be thoughtful, be conscious, not subconsciously choosing these things. Yeah, that's great. The book is Get Out of My Head. The title is down the lower left right now. And we didn't really hammer on this very much, but it is tactical, right? And there are resources at Andrew's website. So mandrewmcconnell.com, go check it out. Mike bought the book earlier. You should buy the book. Get Out of My Head by Andrew McConnell, and then go to andrewmcconnell.com for some of the resources. Andrew, I appreciate the book. I really do. I'm glad that KP pointed it out to me and introduced us. I think it is an important book for a lot of people, but especially for our audience here, because there are a lot of things that as entrepreneurs and architects that we can take from this work. So I appreciate your work and I appreciate you spending this hour with us. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Join us next week for our next Context and Clarity Live conversation. We'll talk about leadership in the profession and beyond. So get ready for that. Again, thank you, Andrew, for being here. Katie, thank you for hosting again with me here today. And thank you for all of those that are watching either live now or in some time-shifted manner through maybe YouTube or the podcast, but thank you for showing up. And seriously, get get out of my head. It's something that you need to read. You need to listen to however you consume. And, you know, Andrew mentioned podcasts, the blog, et cetera. Go over to mandrewmcconnell.com. Find those resources there. Thanks to all of you. Appreciate you. I've got to run. Got to go catch a bus. And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Thank you. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network entrearchitect.com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together. And you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. 
And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.